0: I have to be mindful that parents bring me their child in search of help with a very taxing problem. I don't like to conduct functional analyses. It's a reactive procedure that proves to be necessary in certain cases, right? It's hard to grow as a scientific field if you're unwilling to accept change. Functional analysis is not a static set of procedures from the 80s, it's a process with procedures that will grow, adapt, and improve our science uh, as our science pushes it forward.
1: Welcome to the Practitioner Scientist Podcast. During this episode, our host interviews special guest Dr. Joshua Jessel and discuss his 2019 publication from Behavioral Interventions entitled, Does Analysis Brevity Lead to Loss of Control? A consecutive case series of 26 single-session, interview-informed, synthesized contingency analyses.
0: I was hoping to disprove the long-held belief that efficiency and control exist on two opposite ends of a continuum. That by focusing on one, you had to give up the other.
1: Dr. Jessel has extensive experience assessing and treating problem behavior in individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities. He worked as a behavior analyst at the internationally renowned Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, prior to earning his doctorate in applied behavior analysis at Western New England University under Dr. Greg Hanley.
0: Eventually, I peeked in on a few sessions with uh, it was Dr. Sandy Sandy Jin. And I was honestly blown away with what they were accomplishing within 15 to 30 minutes when I thought functional analyses had to require days or weeks.
1: Together, they developed and refined safe and effective methods of functional analysis and treatment, generating several of the seminal research publications validating the practical functional assessment and skill-based treatment processes. Dr. Jessel went on to complete his postdoc in Texas continuing his studies and research under the mentorship of Dr. Einar Ingverson. During this time, he was an adjunct professor at the University of North Texas. Dr. Jessel is currently an assistant professor at Queens College in New York City. In addition to teaching graduate coursework in behavior analysis, Dr. Jessel runs an outpatient clinic that treats problem behavior. We will hear more from Dr. Jessel in a few minutes. You're the host of the Practitioner Scientist podcast, John Stavitz and Will Martin.
2: Will, in this opening episode, the main topic here is conducting analyses on problem behavior and doing it quickly and, and doing it definitively. Is this a topic that has really come into play for you within your practice? Is it important to you as a practitioner?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was really fortunate that early in my career, actually the first conference that I went to, uh, I heard Greg Hanley talk about his work with the ISCA and Skill-Based Treatment, and it really transformed the way that I thought about functional analyses in everyday practice. And prior to that, I had been one of those practitioners that liked the science of the functional analysis, but never really used it because I I didn't feel good about going into someone's home, agitating their child to the point of crisis at times, and then leaving. And that just really felt like a bad model for me. And so I, I shied away from, from conducting those. But the ISCA really changed the way that I thought about functional analyses and responding to precursors and has really been transformative for me. So I was excited to hear about Dr. Jessel's research as an extension of the ISCO work and really focusing on brevity and saying that it can be even faster than maybe we thought previously, which can just be such a utility for practitioners and for families and all of the clients that we serve to get better information from the assessment, but not have it detract from treatment. Thinking a little bit more about functional analyses in everyday practice, why did this particular publication stand out to you?
2: Well, I remember there, I think it was maybe in 2016, that Dr. Jessel published uh, several of the outcomes from, I think it was a consecutive case series from his work in North Texas. And kind of the point of it was showing that he was getting ISCA's that were definitive across every single case that was coming through his clinic. But then within that paper, experiment two was where he was he was using these analyses that had been initially created by Dr. Lou Hagopian and Dr. Hank Rohn. And he was he was looking at, within the test sessions, the difference in the occurrence of problem behavior between intervals where reinforcers were present and reinforcers were absent. And I, I had never seen a functional analysis broken down that way. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. And it was actually right after that, that uh, Marnie Pollock, who's one of the doc students uh, who's been working a great deal within our research team, she did these analyses from that paper manually <laughs> For some of the ISCA's we'd done. And it was really exciting because the analysis that Dr. Jessel had said really aligned with the results of the ISCA was very much borne out in the data as we were doing these post hoc analyses. So when this newest paper came out, I thought, oh, wow, he's he's digging into that more. And he's kind of looking at you know, how quickly could you get an answer? What's the difference in the answer you get with different lengths of analyses? It felt to me like the next step in a story he'd started to tell a few years ago. And one I was really Kind of eager to eager to learn about. It's cool to be looking back you know, on this interview that we conducted with Dr. Jessel a month ago. And as you reflect back on that conversation, were there any highlights for you or, or things that you really think our listeners are gonna be excited to hear because it was it was fun for you to hear about that?
3: Yeah, definitely. It was great to hear Dr. Jessel talk more about how he considers the practitioner mindset as he's conceptualizing his research studies and how hopefully it is that this line of research will be informative for practitioners. John, to be honest, when you selected this study, I was a bit worried that there might not be as many take-home points for practitioners because I found that while it was about functional analyses, the study itself really focused on this more complex statistical analysis, and I I wasn't sure how practitioners would connect with that because I I didn't personally connect with it as much um, on the first read-through, but it was great to hear Dr. Jessel talk more about how these analyses and uh, the statistical perspective can lead to better outcomes within functional analyses and how that those could be really informative to practitioners. So that was my favorite part of this interview. Dr. Jessel, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. We're really excited to talk about your research and its implications for practitioners. To start things off, do you see yourself as more of a practitioner, more of a scientist, or somewhere in between?
0: Uh, I'm definitely somewhere in between and it's (laughs) it's a little nondescript uh, because I do put practitioner before scientists, as I said in my definition. So I I guess I am more of a practitioner, uh, but I use that to inform my science. So I still am a researcher, and I guess I'm somewhere in the middle leaning towards practitioners, uh, and that's basically decided in our communities, who accepts us and what we do. So if research wants to go a certain direction, I'm going to be pushed towards more helping others and more practice oriented. Inquiries, I guess.
2: I heard you coined the phrase practitioner scientist at ABAI Stockholm uh, late last year, and I, we really like the phrase that you used enough to name our podcast after your label. For anyone who wasn't there, what did you mean when you used the term practitioner scientist?
0: That just means that personally, I'm committed to putting the child first and evaluating strategies informed by pragmatic and practical concerns. Even though I'm a researcher, I do have impir- and I do have empirical curiosities, I have to be mindful that parents bring me their child in search of help with a very taxing problem. So the experimental designs I use to answer questions are progressive in nature and systematically build skills rather than return to a state of problem behavior. And the research questions I ask regarding problem behavior have to end with that child reaching some meaningful milestone. Also, research is in a one-way street from basic to applied to practice. As a practitioner scientist, I use my experience as and with other practitioners to guide my research towards answering questions of social relevance. Basically, all behavior analysts analysts balance uh, their training in some elements of being a practitioner and some elements of being a scientist. I just wasn't comfortable placing the emphasis on scientists personally.
3: We asked Dr. Jessel some pretty simple questions about what is an FA and kind of what are the parameters that differentiate FAs from other assessment processes. And while those were simple questions, I felt like his answers really helped me understand this article and his research line as a whole.
2: No, that's a great point. And and I think that also like FA means different things to different people. And I think that's something he really delved into is what does it mean for him and his practice? Dr.
0: Jessel, what is an FA? Uh, A behavior analyst who conducts a functional analysis, systematically arranges environmental events and observes predictable changes in problem behavior to inform function-based effective treatment. It's important to keep that eventual goal of treatment in the definition, but what separates a functional analysis from other functional assessment procedures are two things, observation and systematic change. A descriptive assessment has observation, but not systematic change. And an indirect assessment has neither observation nor systematic change. So that's just an easy way I like to teach my students how to remember it. Observation, systematic change, and you're trying to treat
3: problem behavior. Later on in the interview, Dr. Jessel talked a little bit more about why he thinks the synthesis of reinforcers is important.
0: You know, you can't pick apart pieces of the reinforcer, isolate them and expect that the child's gonna be happy. Right. They, they expect what's happening in their world and in the real world, everything's given to us. Things are synthesized. You can't I can't imagine for myself one thing that is isolated as reinforcement for myself. So that's how I'm going to treat a child with autism. I'm not going to dehumanize them and expect them to see the world differently from myself. I'm going to expect them to want the same reinforcers that I want. So we keep things synthesized.
2: Is there any debate as to what constitutes an FA?
0: Yeah, I'm going to answer this question as indirectly as possible uh, because the definition I provided comes from Hanley and McCord in 2003, and it's pretty widely accepted. There's no debate on that. Also, the definition is purposely nondescript because it encompasses any procedures, whether from the 60s, 80s, or beyond, with those elements: observation, systematic change, um, and your informing treatment. So. Here goes my answer. It's hard to grow as a scientific field if you're unwilling to accept change. A functional analysis is not a static set of procedures from the 80s, it's a process with procedures that will grow, adapt, and improve our science uh, as our science pushes it forward. That means that I know and accept that the functional analysis I support today will someday be old news. And I'll be happy to be forgotten if it means our functional analyses are becoming quicker, safer, more preferred, and inform better action on the part of practitioners. So, humanity over reputation, and that's very cryptic, I understand that. But that's quoted from one of my favorite comedians, uh, Hannah Gadsby, and she happens to have autism. Um, But the point is humanity over reputation, and that's how I'm going to answer slash not answer that question. Why do you conduct functional analyses? This is honestly a really good question because I don't like to conduct functional analyses. It's a reactive procedure that proves to be necessary in certain cases, right? I would much rather we prevent problem behavior altogether in children uh, so my work would become obsolete, but we know that's just not possible. The functional analysis is there to improve our confidence in identifying and implementing effective treatment strategies. I like to use the analogy of the interpretive leap. So here's what I mean. When a parent calls me up and asks me for help in reducing their child's problem behavior, I'm terrified. Sorry to those who think I'm a confident person, but I'm not. And it's just because I've never met them. I don't know anything about their family or their experiences they're going through. Um, So the interpretive leap is large and I don't know if I can help them with my technology and my training. But then I get the chance to talk to the parents, and they tell me their stories, and I begin to understand their circumstances. I can empathize with them, and I hear contingencies that could be contributing to problem behavior, so the interpretive leap gets smaller. Then I get to observe the child for myself, and I try to recreate their world again, uh, gaining a better understanding of a difficult context for them to cope with. Finally, I hold myself accountable as a practitioner scientist and conduct the functional analyses Uh, closing the interpretive leap to a point that I'm comfortable and I'm confident that I can now design a treatment that will help this family.
3: During the next part of the interview, Dr. Jessel talks about the underutilization of the FA process and some of the barriers to implementing FAs in everyday practice. John, talk to me a little bit about your experience with that.
2: I think that the literature out there makes it clear that I'm not the only behavior analyst who has at times in their career felt insecure about the extent to which I was or was not using functional analyses, or which functional analyses I was using, or where I was using them. It was interesting to hear his take on whether there is or not, is not a problem here, and, and his take on some of the barriers that behavior analysts are facing. Dr. Jessel, are
3: BCBAs
0: underutilizing the FA process? It's hard to say. And I want to be clear that if BCBAs are underutilizing functional analyses, then that's our fault not theirs. Um, we're, we have to build a technology people are willing to use or it will end up in obscurity destined to help no one. And if you have ever watched that inventor on YouTube who creates these ridiculous contraptions, you know, the ones where it's like a clock and it smacks her awake and it gets stuck in her hair. And it's just like this funny, uh, uh, this funny video of how she created this alarm clock that works, but no one's gonna buy it because it's terrible and not socially acceptable. So if clinicians are openly telling us that they aren't using a functional analysis, because it's like an alarm clock clock slapping them in the face. Well, then we need to listen and we need to change uh, rather than double down and tell them they're wrong.
2: Is time needed to implement the FA one of the biggest barriers for practitioners?
0: I I think it is, uh, but more specifically, it's likely about time being exposed to aversive events and high rates of problem behavior without anything to show for it. So if you took extra time to get the child in a calm and happy state, with access to reinforcement and use that time to get to know exactly what preferred environment uh, the child is looking for, then that's important and can be part of the functional assessment process. I don't think practitioners would necessarily find that specifically as a barrier, but if you're taking hours, days or weeks to reprimand a child in one condition and then provide excessive instructions and time out in another condition, yeah that, that's kind of a huge barrier. nobody got time for that. Most clinicians got a few uh, one-hour visits a week and have huge caseloads. I want to offer them a functional analysis that can be conducted in one of those visits. In fact, I want the functional analysis to require less time than the one-hour visit so that the clinician can immediately begin or develop a treatment. Uh, I keep bringing up doctors, but I guess that's kind of the analogy is when you go to a doctor, you should be able to get a prescription and then pick it up at CVS on the same day. That's, that's the ideal moment, right? Like I wanna start treatment right away.
3: That's fantastic. According to the literature out there and your personal experience, how long do FAs usually take?
0: For me, a functional analysis will take around 15 minutes. Uh, and then at the short end, it can take as little as three minutes. It all depends on that interpretive leap I mentioned earlier. If I'm confident I identified the problematic context uh, based on information from um, the interview and observation, then I don't really need to watch the child hit themselves or others for extended periods of time. I already know I can develop an effective treatment, and it doesn't depend on a specific amount of time. I want the bare minimum necessary, and if I can still inform effective action, then why not use the briefest functional analysis with the least amount of exposure or problem behavior? Uh, this This concept of time doesn't apply to functional analysis. It's it's confidence. It's that leap that we're just uh, continuously making smaller till we get to the point of we know we can treat the problem. According to an article published in Java in
3: 2015, nearly half of the BCBA surveys said that there was a lack of support or acceptance for FA procedures. Could you explain why there might not be support for these FAs?
0: Well, I believe that unfortunately the term functional analysis has come to be synonymous with a very specific format and not with the general process of creating an empirical understanding of environmental variables contributing to problem years. So yes, the barriers to clinical application exist and they are real depending on the functional analysis format you use. Certain functional analyses take too long. They could be difficult. Uh, they can be dangerous, and more often than not, some of them produce undifferentiated or unhelpful results. There are some functional analysis formats I refuse to do for those very same reasons, so I understand the lack of support. In fact, I believe the Roscoe study uh, where this information came from, or or it was, there were two studies that came out, Oliver, I think, was the other one. They would have gotten different answers if the term functional analysis wasn't commandeered in this in this specific way. After I tell people that I conduct a functional analysis, uh, evaluating a single contingency informed by an open-ended interview and observation, many of the older behavior analysts, they come up to me and they tell me, yeah, we've been doing that for years, Uh, nothing special there. Um, And the thing is Dr. Hanley and I, and others, uh, have kind of just packaged this and and made it easy to disseminate. Um, I mean, I look at functional analyses and if you wanna look at functional analyses before the 80s, it was just psychologists using their training in behavior analysis to identify contingencies, working in the environment at any given time, giving information from talking to people, interacting from the child, and then systematically evaluating those situations. I think we've become too inundated with trying to be hyperanalytic to the point that we're losing sight of the individual we're supposed to be helping. If we return to a point of putting applied before analysis again, uh, functional analyses can regain the support um, that they've lost. So uh, that was a little bit of a meandering point made, but I want to end it on positive. That even if if we've lost some support in functional analysis, I think it st- uh, still has a chance to be regained.
2: What is the difference between a good FA and a
0: bad one? Okay. <laughs> well, it, it's it's not a good start if you have to tell the parents to leave the room. That means that you know that what you're doing is not likely to be found acceptable or it will make the parents uncomfortable and you're purposely hiding behind closed doors. In my clinic, parents see everything their child experiences from beginning to end and we explain everything before we do it, giving them any opportunity to ask questions and more importantly, consent to our procedures at any point in time. Above all, uh, that is someone's child in that room with you and you need to respect them and their family. Another good way to spot a bad functional analysis if you're not willing to put a video of the sessions on YouTube. If you're afraid of the general public seeing what you're doing, you may not be a good representation of our field. Basically, a good functional analysis is efficient so we can move on to strengthening skills that will improve the child's life. A good functional analysis is safe. No one, including the child, should ever feel out of control. And a good functional analysis is acceptable not only for the parents but also for the clients. In fact, we should include so much access to reinforcement during the functional analysis that they prefer that context and our little probes of EO presentations become unrecognizable, just blips on their radar. If a pediatrician administers a vaccine correctly, there'll be stickers before and candy after, and the child won't even remember he was stuck with a needle. Uh, That's actually coming from my experiences with uh, my pediatrician when I was a kid, whom I still remember, his name is Dr. Matthews, if he's still out there. I loved going to see them, and I wanted to recreate that experience I had uh, with children with autism who come to my clinic. For many children, the first experiences with us will really be the functional analysis. And so it needs to be a good one, because that's your first opportunity to build trust with them.
2: It was cool to hear from Dr. Jessel about some of the challenges and problems that he sees practitioners facing around this topic. What did you make of some of the solutions or the ways that he was trying to use this research to address those problems?
3: I really enjoyed hearing more about what was going on in the field at the time that Dr. Jessel conceptualized this study, especially about analytic efficiency in particular, but also experimental control, and just thought that provided some really good context about why this study is important.
1: How
2: and when did you become interested in analytic efficiency and experimental control?
0: Okay, this goes back to the days of yore, and I think that's a joke from friends. I'm hoping it is so people get that, but fact check me on it. I came to Dr. Hanley, I'll start this by saying that I came to Dr. Hanley a staunch believer that Awad et all, 1982-1994, was the only way to do things. I mean, if a kid's shoelaces were untied, I would say a lot et all could fix that. That's how bad I was. I think uh, that must have really frustrated Greg right, because I was so stubborn and dogmatically fixated to the point of ignoring the science of what he was doing. So eventually I peeked in on a few sessions with, uh, it was Dr. Sandy Jin. And I was honestly blown away with what they were accomplishing within 15 to 30 minutes when I thought functional analyses had to require days or weeks. And it was just so elegant to see problem behavior turn off immediately with each delivery of the reinforcers and then turn back on for just a second when the evocative context was arranged. Uh, Like that's ultimate control to me. We have to conceptualize problem behavior as a man. The child is asking for something in a state of uh, desperation for them. And if the problem behavior isn't turning off immediately when you provide the reinforcers, then you probably aren't in control of what's influencing their problem behavior. When I ask someone for a glass of water, I stop asking them once I get the glass of water. So I saw these connections working with Dr. Hanley and his team. And basically, my research since then has been trying to quantify quantify for publication what I saw in those brief moments, because I think it has practical value, and I, I know it does for clinicians that I work with
2: what questions, concerns, or tension were you aware of related to this topic?
0: Specifically to efficiency, I think what we're talking about right now. um, We had submitted a smaller study before this, and it is now in behavioral interventions, I think in the 2019 um, issues where we went through the whole process beginning with the single session ISCA, ending with socially validated treatment outcomes for three participants. And some of the feedback was that the functional analysis was so brief that there wasn't enough problem behavior to know if the participants needed these or any assessment and treatment services and i guess that's the concerns people have but it's a little disappointing for me to hear because it seems to mean that some of my colleagues believe that they need to directly see a loss of control and a meltdown for extended periods of times before they the light bulb goes off and they're willing to admit that the child has a problem so this is kind of ignoring the fact that the children who are admitted to our outpatient clinic solely uh, were designed, or our clinic was designed to treat problem behavior and they're referred to us by teachers and parents who report being unable to manage the problem behavior themselves, right? These are intensive clinics that they're coming to. Um, and this is also ignoring the fact that the problem behavior was repeatedly evoked within seconds of each uh, EO presentation within only three to five minutes. That defines a problem to me. And this is also ignoring the fact that parents completed questionnaires at the end, identifying that the problem was solved for them and they found what we did is helpful. So it's okay to take that interpretive leap sometimes and say that a problem exists based on all this information I've gathered. Um, I'm much more fearful of seeing too much problem behavior instead of seeing not enough. Here's a little experiment um, that everyone at home can do to test this out for themselves, to find where that kind of balance is for them pick some studies in the literature with data from functional analyses and take the rate of, uh, you see each of those points, take the rate and multiply it by the session duration, and that'll take you uh, tell you the total number of instances within each session. Add those up, how many times those, uh, those children actually hit themselves or others, and see at what point you find it's acceptable. Because personally, I'm finding it harder and harder to justify just how long we as a field, I'm not saying anyone specifically, just we as a field, are exposing children to extended periods of time with high rates of problem behavior. When you
3: conceptualize this study, what was going on in the field that was relevant to this line of research?
0: Sure, there are are a few studies that foreshadowed this publication, if if you follow um, the the research. First, our 2016 paper, where we uh, really solidified what the ISCA was. And actually that's where the functional analysis got the ISCA name that people all um, know and love <laughs> or love to hate uh, but people don't mention this much but the second part of that 2016 paper includes the within session analysis of response rates during uh, the reinforcer present and absent intervals of one test session so even at that time when we were first introducing the ISCA or the full ISCA as an efficient alternative to other functional analysis formats I was already thinking of how it can be faster. Um, that was the prelude I guess. Uh, then in 2018 we published the consecutive controlled case series of 25 participants who experienced the entire assessment and treatment process in an outpatient clinic in an intensive two-week period. That was uh, six hours a day those clients were there. And that set the stage for these large end studies because All these clients were getting the assessment and treatment process for clinical reasons. The best sort of applied science to me is one in which I barely have to change what I would already be doing as a clinician and still be highly informative as a scientist. I guess that builds on uh, what I mean as a practitioner scientist. This all led to the next consecutive uh, consecutive cases uh, who entered the clinic to receive the same effective assessment treatment services and we, we reanalyzed the rates of problem behavior during the first test sessions uh, and that gave us our next study that we talked about today. And really, our analysis isn't novel. It came from Wallace and Awada in 1999, um, where they reanalyzed functional analyses at 15, 10, and 5-minute sessions. So all this technology exists to culminate into
3: um, what we did. Dr. Jesso, as a scientist, what kind of questions did you hope to answer through this research?
0: I was hoping to disprove the long-held belief that efficiency and control exist on two opposite ends of a continuum. That by focusing on one, you had to give up the other. Uh, We have to understand control as a construct that is there to represent our confidence that we identified environmental variables that influence problem behavior. And not only that, we can also say how much those variables influence problem behavior. So let me give you an example. Let's say I take a brick and I throw it through a window. I bet you're pretty confident it was the brick that broke that window, and I wouldn't need hundreds of replications across long periods of t- uh, time to prove this relation. Our interpretations of control can be established quite quickly. And I think I mentioned this before, but this is a more powerful demonstration. I'm not telling you to wait hours uh, and use complex structured criteria or quantitative probability analyses to aid in your interpretation of control. I'm telling you to give me a couple minutes, and you'll see it with your own eyes.
3: Dr. Jessel is going to walk us through some of the methods part of this paper. John, what were some of your takeaways from that part of the conversation?
2: Well, one thing I was glad he talked about is I know there's there may be a lot of listeners who have heard a lot about the practical functional assessment process or ISCA process, but he is a veteran. He's someone who's published on this a lot and has a lot of experience. So it is still instructive for me, at least, to hear how he's doing these now and kind of the direction he's headed in. Additionally, I think that one of the more technical or at least new to me parts of the paper were the analyses where they were kind of looking on a, with more of a finer, closer in look at the data, looking at intervals when reinforcement was absent, reinforcers when it's present, making some comparisons. It was really good to hear him describe how they were doing those analyses and, and when they were doing this.
3: Yeah, I agree 100%, John. I also thought it was really interesting to hear Dr. Jessel talk a little bit more about who was involved in kind of all aspects of this study from um, his research team and himself just doing a lot of the, the legwork for this, but also that there were some regular practitioners at the BCABA level who were involved, so
2: uh, that was really great to hear, too. Please tell our listeners about your process for conducting the experimental analysis in your paper.
0: Sure. Each client who came to our clinic experienced the ISCA and began treatment on the first visit. Typically, we would conduct the ISCA with three or five-minute sessions, but for the purpose of this study, we upped it to 10 minutes. Uh, we recorded every analysis and calculated the rate of problem behavior within three, five, and then the full 10 minute sessions. The data analysis of the full ISCA's are, are published in Java, maybe in the last issue, it's in 2020 sometime. Uh, the data analysis specific to the first test session or a single session ISCA is in the study we're discussing now or today. Uh, what we're evaluating was two categories of control. One, the traditional binary approach which we used uh, agreement among expert panelists and, and a structured criteria. And then the second was a multi-level approach, which we used uh, ex- extended structured criteria we developed and the non-parametric statistic of a percentage of non-overlapping data. All these were combi- uh, combined. Um, practitioners don't need to use them. This is specifically for scientific reasons, uh, but we were using all these different analyses just to show correspondence between them uh, and the, But the importance was in the introduction of that multi-level structured criteria. So interpretations of control aren't really a binary yes or no. I think we can dig a little deeper than that. We know that because uh, when you look at a graph, you don't just say yes or no, you, say, like, you have to take some time for some of them and be like, yeah, sort of this one. Um, so there is a degree of influence that environmental variables will have, and we're trying to capture that degree. Uh, We created those levels, strong, moderate, and weak, and these levels are meant to have practical value. So if you're saying to yourself, when you look at the results of an FA, uh, sort of, uh, I guess so, uh, you're kind of saying that uh, there's weak control, and you're likely then to have weak control in your treatment uh, to a certain extent. And, And then when you have strong control, you're confident, you say, yeah, definitely, I definitely got this, and I'm ready to go. So the difference between those can tell a practitioner uh, what to do. Maybe they need to keep going with their assessment until they're more confident on what they're, uh, what's influencing problem behavior, or maybe they're ready to go at that moment and they know that the treatment is gonna be effective.
2: Dr. Jessel, would you be willing to talk to us about the amount of time or effort that it took for your team to conduct the analyses that were included in this paper?
0: Yeah, the binary ones. So it's the structured criteria from Hagopian in 2013, somewhere around there, don't quote me on that. Rowan also uh, put out an extension to it where he added some criteria. Uh, That was 2015. I could be making up both those dates, (laughs) but uh, just fact check me later. Uh, But it's a lot. It takes a lot, and it takes some math, right? You have to calculate, uh, I think, standard deviations and then create... uh, Lines in the graph, draw them out actually, and then count how many points are be- above that line versus below that line, minus it out, make sure it's above 50%. Uh, it, it's a process, it takes some time and it takes some training. Uh, after you do it for a while, clearly it can become easier, but it does physically require time on your part. Um, and then, what were the other ones? The panelists, I mean, that's just People with training, and they're looking at the graph and saying, you know, yes or no. Then the structured, the multi-level structured criteria basically just has two sorts of uh, criteria for each level, and it's, uh, do you see some overlap with the test and control, and do you see some problem behavior in the control condition? That's is meant to be very uh, conservative in that if you see one test session uh, overlapping with one control, that boom, you hit it. If you see one control condition uh, session that with problem behavior, boom, you hit it and if you hit both of them, it's weak. If you hit one of them, it's uh, moderate. And if you don't hit either, it's strong. And that's just because that's how we see data. Um, and that's how comfortable we're getting with the results of our FA. We should see clear differentiation. Uh, if you have what is influencing problem behavior, you should see only problem behavior in the test and you should not see problem behavior in the control. So it's it's meant to be conservative to the point that we're saying we're that confident that our analyses will have strong control.
2: It it almost felt to me as I was reading the paper, like potentially these analyses were done, the, the ones in the behavioral interventions paper were done kind of post hoc. Like maybe the therapists who provided treatment may or may not have known these results and that um, this might have been kind of like a, a retrospective look back. Is that the case?
0: It was kind of both. So I knew what we were going to analyze. Um, I knew what we were going to go back and look for. Uh, But the point was that we were doing these functional analyses anyways. So I'm thinking of ways of analyzing them uh, while maintaining the integrity of the assessment and treatment for the clients. Uh, So it doesn't change anything for them with me going back through their data and analyzing their problem behavior compared to uh, the reinforcers. Um, So, yeah, it's it's post hoc, but the idea came uh, beforehand.
2: Can you speak to, like, who who are the people who actually did these analyses? Like, who who was on your research team that that, that provided the data that we're now reading?
0: Yeah, the people that actually worked with um, these participants uh, were uh, BCABAs, or they were just therapists that were working at a clinic, and it was um, their job to provide these clinical services. So they weren't necessarily researchers. Um, And actually uh, a lot of the FAs, uh, most of the time I started off doing them just because, I don't know, I like to have my hand in things at first. You know, you get worried uh, about how people do things and I'm just really invested in seeing that the client does well. So they had to kind of pull me away and make sure I wasn't doing everything because they're hired to do it. but when you first meet a family, it's just so hard to let go and say, okay, I'm going to pass you off to um, other people to take care of your kid. Um, so for me, actually, interviews, I always did. No matter what, I was there asking questions because I wanted to get to know the family. I wanted to know their stories, and I wanted to hear what they're going through. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so people weren't necessarily researchers that helped in this, but they understand the importance of helping the clients for, for their job. Um, so the two can go together.
2: And then, the, as far as the the um, the analyses that show up in this behavioral interventions article, were, were most of these analyses done by you personally, or or by, by kind of people on your research team, as it were?
0: Uh, okay, yeah. So, um, Mitra's had a big part in this. Um, she was there also supervising um, the therapist and she did analyses. Ingvarson was there with us all, also in the um, clinic. He was there to throw back um, ideas and he was uh, my mentor during my postdoc. So we always kept a good relationship when it came to research. Uh, Hanley's there too because um, the idea, like I told you, it, it came from, it engendered from work with with uh when i was there but i saw with um his uh his students and my time with him so he's got to get his um due and then my wife is there because she helped out with some data analysis as well um so you know those long nights where i have a lot of data to analyze here she is ra ready to go
2: It's awesome uh it's, it sounds like a, a well-balanced team <laughs> but uh a lot of work obviously went into these a ton of work and those are all really talented people you're talking about.
3: Tell us a little bit about how things turned out.
0: Well it's published so that's that's a good start uh, but the majority of the single session is because from 10 to three minutes had strong control. Uh, there was some degradation interpretations of control when you got briefer and briefer um, and things got to get uh got a little bit dicey around three minutes but there's still pretty good correspondence across data analyses. so those four different ones we mentioned including the pnd but a percentage of non-overlapping data but pnd was probably the least helpful just because it's purely quantitative so it doesn't really take into account things that can impact their visual analysis Uh, so the more intimate fluctuations in our interpretations of control came from those those levels
2: are there any pieces of data you think are delicate enough you'd like to set the record straight or kind of prevent someone from misunderstanding what the data is saying?
0: So the first part is that table one, it's hard to visualize what this means. We, we had actually individual graphs for each participant that identified control for them at three, five and ten minutes within that session. And that actually is on uh, the figure example. Let me see on figure one. So we originally had each of those for each participant included um, uh, within the original submission, but it was removed because it it took up a lot of real estate. So instead we have that summary figure and two, which is um, less informative of the individual differences. Uh, So I have those as supplemental uh, data if anyone ever wants them, they can always ask me, but it makes it a little bit easier to visualize the kind of shift from the possibility of three minutes having no control, then going to control. So if you look at some of the participants like Joe, Jim, or Dace, or those ones on the bottom where you start to see the threes go to no's and the fives slightly go to no's, and then the the tens, 10-minute sessions, they really stay at yeses. Uh, That shows you the degradation. That shows you, as you get briefer and briefer, uh, there's less and less difference between the test and control conditions. Um, so in this sort of instance, yeah, extending it gives you a better idea and it tells us that there may be some sort of limit. There may be some sort of limit in some instances, in some cases where you're not gonna get what you need in a minute or, or you know, 30 seconds. And it, it depends on the participant. So I don't think we'll ever have a standard number or a standard definition of time for for everyone that works for everyone. I think what we're we're gonna have is a progressive um, uh, need to know basis, right? It's like, you can start with three minutes, and if you're getting that strong control, stop and start treatment for that participant, then you can go to five, if you don't, 10, um, and take the time you need uh, individualized for that individual.
2: So I think when I was reading the paper, I think kind of a misconception I had is I was like, "Oh cool like you can get um great differentiation in just a few minutes and I'm wondering now is that is that kind of missing the point what would, would would a greater point be um having the right tools to know where your control is for however long your analysis is um are those both the questions
0: <laughs> yeah i I like what you, where you're going with that because. the the multi-level structure criteria isn't just for the single session ISCA, or it's not just for the ISCA itself. It should be applied to all functional analyses, and we should be um, evaluating it in terms of do they predict those different um, uh, levels of of treatment uh, outcomes. So we want to know. I'm saying that because just based on my experience with functional analyses, but really we need to further evaluate and show that uh, certain functional analyses have more control than others. Um, then we can say more control, more efficient, more effective, uh, at, uh, producing the treatment outcomes you're looking for. So it has a broader appeal, I think.
2: If practitioners take the time to understand and emulate your analyses in this paper, do you predict that they'll be better equipped to treat problem behavior? I mean, I
0: hope so. Mainly what I hope is, uh, you know every time I publish something, I'm hoping that it has some use for practitioners. that's that's the reason why I'm working. If not, Maybe I'll change jobs. But um, the whole idea for the single session isca and the multi-level structured criteria of control is that you could do something quick, you can do something practical, and you can still have this identifiable level of strong control that will help you predict how you're going to be as a clinician. Um, And if you're able to maximally influence problem behavior once you start, and appropriate behavior, once you um, take those reinforcers and change the contingency. So the hope is always there.
3: Dr. Jessel, this article is a little bit more complex than your standard behavior analytic journal article. There's a little bit more math
0: involved. Uh, What's your take-home point for practitioners? Practitioners, I'm hoping uh, that they come home thinking that Barriers don't necessarily have to exist to the functional analysis. It's not the general. Every functional analysis has these barriers, time, control, uh, safety. Uh, I think they can conduct a functional analysis that um, doesn't require much time but can still give them high levels of control and still make them confident that they can treat the problem behavior of the individual they're working with. Um, So I always try to tell them the best way to get my foot in the door is to say, uh, look, if you give me five minutes, right, that's what this study is trying to show you. Give me three minutes. I can conduct a functional analysis. And so can you. And you can gain enough uh, qualitative and important information about this child to then um, inform your treatment decisions. And it doesn't have to come at the expense of control and they can use that multi-level structure criteria uh, pretty easily Uh, you can do it just by looking at the data right just see small differences and small changes in overlap or uh, probably even the control and if you practice enough it can be pretty simple for you Uh, so i think that the ability is there and we're trying to get closer and closer to making this practical Uh, for any clinicians. And if they do continue to have concerns, I mean, that's what I want to hear so that I can change my research further. And that'll be the next study. And actually, wait, that is, I've already heard (laughs) some concerns about the difficulty in conducting a a single session ISCA, right? The analysis itself is hard to do. Like you're analyzing on the second second by second basis. So um, I'm not, I mean, John, you're the one that's answering this question for me, so thanks. Um, But we have people who are listening to practitioners like uh, John, um, and and I'm incredibly grateful for them.
3: Uh, In terms of thinking about a practitioner who might read this study and then... uh complete a three to five minute analysis and jump right into treatment, do you see any risks to uh, not having enough information about a client and kind of an incomplete picture of their behavior if um, if this type of analysis isn't used correctly?
0: Yeah, so first off, uh, it's important to note or specify that um, the three to five minutes is the analysis. It's not the part that you're gaining information, it's the part that you're validating the information you already gained. so I don't mind that that uh, that period of the assessment uh, being brief. What I would uh, be worried about being brief is the interview uh, or observation, because those are your times to get qualitatively rich information. The interview is that time to talk to the family members. For me, it takes around 15 minutes, but I don't mind going to 30 minutes if if they're particularly talkative, because it just means they have more information to give me. Uh, as long as it's on topic, sometimes they like to talk about a time at Christmas, you know, in 1994, um, which is fun. And it's, it's, it's good to hear from their history, but it removes uh, what's relevant about their current state of affairs. Um, so, so that's the part that I think uh, requires a little bit more time uh, than the three to five minutes. And it's OK, because during that time, you already asked the family, like, what does your child love to do? Let's give that to them right now. So during the interview, that child should be happy, relaxed and engaged and not worried about anything in his world uh, at this moment. Um, So I'm not worried about how long that takes because they're not exposed to problem behavior during this time. They're not exposed to danger or safety risks. Um, I I want them to be just in a a happy uh, uh, context while I interview the family and gain all that information that is necessary.
3: Yeah, I think that's super helpful to think about what the child's doing during the interview, or what the participant's during, doing during the interview, and um, that if you can achieve happy, relaxed, and engaged, that's information right there and important to inform analyses. So, really making the best use of time before uh, the analysis happens makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, it's true. If you can't take everything they love and give it to them, or you don't know what they love, you can't give it to them, that's problematic, man. And that's going to be something that's influential uh, when your treatment comes down the line, because how are you supposed to reinforce appropriate behavior if you can't even specifically identify what those reinforcers are?
2: Will, the, the next part of our conversation with him focused on what kind of implications there might be for researchers or for the research community. Was there anything that stood out to you from that? Of the conversation.
3: Yeah, definitely. I, I really thought it was great to hear Dr. Jessel talk more about some maybe future directions of his research where the entire process from ISCA through skill-based treatment might be represented in one data set. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about his ideas around that. I also found it super great to hear what other kind of researchers were thinking about for future directions. You know, Dr. Jessel mentioned Dr. Greg Hanley and some of his work and how the ISCA could move from more of a time-based analysis to a performance-based analysis and uh, drew on some ideas from other uh, researchers as well. Finally, John, Dr. Jessel talked a little bit about the work that our team is doing in collaboration with some researchers from Vanderbilt University. Do you want to speak a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, well, I wasn't necessarily expecting Dr. Jessel to bring this up, but I'm glad that he sees his work with our team as one of the positive outcomes of this particular study. I do want to be very clear that my intention on inviting him to be a guest on this podcast really had nothing to do with our research collaboration that's more incidental, but it's been really exciting. I've had the chance to work with, along with Dr. Jessel, Kevin Jung, who's a uh, graduate student in engineering in the Sarkar Lab at the Vanderbilt University School of Engineering, and then I've been representing Triad. It's been great to try to work together to create an app that will do the work that this article showcases. So one of the hallmarks of a lot
3: of the ISCA research that I've seen is that it includes treatment data um, in their uh, in their articles to kind of validate uh, the ISCA itself. And in this particular analysis, Dr. Jessel, um, there wasn't treatment data to kind of validate this tool. How would you answer some potential concerns that your analysis is fast but not informative enough?
0: Yeah, it's true. Uh, we didn't include the treatment results, although all the participants received the treatment, right? They... They went through the whole process, but I just kind of picked out a piece that I was interested in showing the research community or showing practitioners. Um, But in 2019, that 2019 study I mentioned, we did do it. So we did the single session ISCA uh, with three participants and, and got good treatment outcomes. So from my perspective, personally, I saw it work. I saw the single session produce meaningful change, and I saw it being informative Uh, for treatment. But obviously, that's not going to be enough and it shouldn't be enough for scientists. So I would really want to see independent evaluations of that, showing others doing the single session ISCO with the treatment evaluation. And and personally, I would just like to read that to see that. uh, I just love to see that beginning to end process, not this broken up Here's an F.A. like what I did. And then here's a treatment piece here. Here's another treatment piece there. Like most of my studies are from beginning to end. And I like to read other studies because I read that participant section. I read that fake name and I'm like, you know, Bobby, six years old, man, he had some real bad problem behavior. Um, And then I see in the end, effective treatment. Parents are happy. It kind of just brings it all together for me. So I, I do want others to conduct this research.
2: It seems like you, you want to empower behavior analysts to be able to conduct rapid analyses, but how might you address a, a concern that the time needed to conduct these analyses might be better spent? When I say the analyses, like the, the, the different levels of control, doing some of those, those calculations, do you think that time would be better spent just running additional sessions or additional test and control sessions and looking for differentiation uh, through a more conventional analysis?
0: Yeah, so if you're a scientist first, scientist practitioner, I see why you'd want to run more sessions because that's your priority is um, control, right? Over over ending at a point that is practical. Um, but from my perspective, again, I'm I, I flip it and I, I don't I wouldn't really be justified in running more conventional analyses if Rapid analyses are just as effective at informing effective treatment, and that's how I see it. So if we can be faster and just as effective, it's not about being more effective. It's being just as effective as a standard that's out there. Um, If we're more effective, then that's even more reason to not do extended sessions. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, if we're just as effective, then you should go with the faster one. Um, Go with what's more pragmatic. Uh, But here's what I'd really like to see, um, because these procedures, they they lend themselves to being adapted and changed. Um, So you can start with the single session ISCA, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, start with three to five minutes. If you get strong difference uh, or strong control, and you uh, are confident that you know your treatment, move on, go to treatment. But if you're not, then it's okay. Extend it a little bit more. You have the ability, because that single session ISCA, all it is is one test session from a full ISCA. So now you have your starting point. You did the test session, move on to your control, and you can go to that conventional test control comparison until you see a difference. Um, So the option is there. If rapid analyses fail for you personally, it's okay. Move to the conventional. But I, I just suggest why not start more efficient if there's a possibility that you'll be just as effective
2: how has this study been received by other scientists or have you received any feedback thus far
0: who knows (laughs) Uh, all i know is that um you know there's some awesome work in the pipeline uh, and there's awesome work by great scientists who are trying to make this more practical more accessible and more socially acceptable and i i love those elements those are the defining elements of my research so if someone else is doing that and taking (laughs) Um, Some of the weight off my back. um, That's great to hear. So, John, you've been working on uh, developing an app to make it easier for uh, practitioners to conduct it, right? I was telling you the analysis is really hard for practitioners to, you know, uh, calculate second by second changes in behavior. Well, your app will show that for them. It'll do that for them uh, live. So they have to just type in as if they were just uh, watching the behavior and observing the behavior, recording the behavior like any behavior analyst would do, and it does it for them. So I think that's great research. And then Dr. Hanley is, is continuing to re- remove any um, sort of time-based criteria in the analysis. So he's trying to make it entirely performance-based, meaning positive or negative, the child is determining what's going on in their environment. So it's important to make sure that not only the EO is there to evoke behavior, but that reinforcer is there to also eliminate behavior. So he wants to give them time to be happy, relaxed, and engage with those reinforcers before he implements the next EO. And I think that's awesome. It may extend the time of the analysis a little bit, but again, what I mentioned was important about efficiency is efficiency in, um, in reducing the time of their exposure to the EO, not to reinforcement. Reinforcement's great. The more reinforcement you can give a child, the better. Uh, so what this does is may extend the analysis overall, but it extends it by giving them more access to reinforcement, making sure that they're comfortable where they are and they want to then come to that room again. The next time you see them, they're excited, they'll say your name, they'll, they'll want to be around those um, in that context. So, so I, I'm excited in general about things that are coming out and um, I think certain scientists are going in the right direction and moving our field towards uh, where we originally were, which was a humanistic psychology towards the client. Um, Don't take us towards physics because they work with atoms, right? Mr. Adams doesn't have feelings. Mr. Adams doesn't have a family. Uh, We need to go towards humanism, go towards the philosophy of of helping others. Um, Just my opinion. Thinking a
3: bit about after this research was published, how has the data that you've generated influenced your research and practice?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm still doing single session ISCA's, and I was actually preparing for a large-scale evaluation. Same thing. What we do is, you know, they come in, assessment, treatment, the whole shebang. Um, But I was going to start with the single session ISCA and do just that, progressively extend it, as, um, it, as I see is necessary. And this is kind of modeled after uh, Dr. Vollmer's publication back in, I think it's 95, um, where you kind of follow that follow that progressive model, though we want to do it with the ISCA because even their briefest FA required more time than the, the full ISCA. So we're talking a, about a different scale here of time that is required. So uh, really, no matter what, we start on treatment within the first visit, but I want to see how fast we can start that treatment. Um, so I wanna I wanted to create that uh, large uh, consecutive case series again, but um, unfortunately, COVID nineteen came around and research with participants has been um, put on hold. So we're gonna have to adapt, and it's for good reasoning. Don't get me wrong. I think it's very important that we were, we all stayed home during these times uh, and to keep those kids safe. It, it was the right thing to do um it just delays our information that we're going to be able to provide researchers and practitioners later on
2: what do you think the chances are that, that the, this pair of studies your 2019 and 2020 studies will still be helpful to practitioners and scientists 30 years from now
0: yeah so 30 30 years is a long time um that's a mortgage on a house so what else what i think about this is just like in 30 years I'm not thinking about what you're saying in 30 years i'm hoping to be retired you know i'm hoping to be like on a vineyard off the grid somewhere growing my own grapes making my own wine i'm thinking france in the middle of nowhere would be nice because my wife is originally from her family's from france um so you know there's an opportunity right there uh or or japan i really love japan and i lived there for a year and um that's where my family originally is from it's beautiful if you get a chance to go. You can really find a nice little, you know, bucolic spot to just die <laughs> nicely. So that's what I think about in 30 years. Uh, but if a practitioner or a scientist, um, if they're still finding what I do relevant in 30 years, they can come and visit me. You know, my address will be in the phone book or something, and they can try my wine, and we'll talk.
3: Are you hoping that uh, that other researchers are going to extend this line of work so that in thirty years uh, there'll be uh, an entire kind of new line of research that practitioners can draw from, from?
0: Well, I'm hoping they put me to shame. Like thirty years, I don't want to be the thing that they're doing. I, I mean, hopefully it's still relevant to changing what we do, but I don't want it to be what they're doing because by then our technology should have grown, it should have progressed. My name's forgotten greg hanley's name is forgotten uh some new name is remembered some new uh generation right that's the point of what we're doing is we're supposed to be training the next generation to be better than us not just as good as us so i'm hoping some students come out there and they either show something that's going to be more practical more preferred by family members that actually leads to more effective treatments i don't know it's the possibilities are, are beyond me just because I'm not in that next generation. I can't see what's gonna happen next. I don't have the hindsight. I'm just gonna keep putting out what I'm doing. And, and you know, if it inspires one student to then extend it and make it better, I guess I, I would consider myself successful. Our science, science isn't about legacy. I mean, if you wanna go uh, and... <laughs> There's, there's other things that produce a legacy. So if you want to do those other things, maybe you make like a nice bottle of wine with your name on it that lasts forever that people still want to drink in 30, 60 years. There's a legacy. But technology, no, that grows and that changes. I'm
3: looking forward to trying uh, Jessel et all vineyards in uh, 2050 or whenever the, the series comes out.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of calling it an uh, uh, interview-informed synthesized Zinfandel because those require like <laughs> multiple grapes put in and I'm going to I'm gonna interview people to get information about what grapes to use, what are the best. I'll go to like Italy and France and then I'll make my synthesized wine.
3: There's going to be a very niche group of people who thinks that's hilarious and yeah, they'll, yes. they'll be your target market.
0: Yeah, Everyone else, all the French people will be like, what the <laughs> is this? Five people are going to buy my wine. It's be Greg Hanley and
2: at all. <laughs> well, Will, we finally reached the end of our first episode of this practitioner scientist podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure work on this episode with you, and listening back to some of these comments from our conversation with Dr. Jessel.
3: Yeah, likewise, John. It's been great to talk through this a little bit more. I feel like I learned a lot from Dr. Jessel. Just want to make sure we took some time to thank Dr. Jessel for being the first guest on our podcast. He was really gracious with his time and worked through some of the technical issues we had. And it was just great to talk with him more. And hopefully we can talk to him again soon about some of these future research designs that he has in mind. Also wanted to thank you, the listener, for getting this far if you made it. Uh, We hope that we can talk to some more researchers here in the future and uh, stay tuned for more episodes.
2: Agreed. I'm not quite sure the timeline is going to be for our next episode, but hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, have a great night and... uh, Hope to be seeing you again soon. Same to you, John.
1: This episode of the Practitioner Scientist podcast is brought to you by the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center's Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. Triad would like to thank Dr. Joshua Jessel for his participation in this inaugural episode of the podcast. Access to the article discussed in this episode, as well as contact information for Dr. Jessel and our host can be found in the show notes. The thoughts views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individual hosts and guests and do not represent the thoughts views or opinions of triad the vanderbilt kennedy center or vanderbilt university medical center this episode was written and produced by john staubitz and will martin nicholas holt edited and mixed the episode voiceovers for this episode were created by me logan burnett Special thanks to Aislinn Kaiser and Amanda Spice for their help planning and creating the episode. All music for this episode was written and performed by John Stobitz, Corey Nichols, Nick Milliner, and Dave Coleman, and was produced, engineered, and recorded by Dave Coleman at Howard's Apartment Studio.